good morning, everybody. Glad to be here. Oh, you're, you tried it again, too. That was even better. We all heard about the Power Slap League. Are you aware of what is going on out there? Dana White, the president of the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting League, right? For those of us who, you know, we don't have the patience to wait for somebody to get knocked out or to tap out, he and, and some other rival leagues now bring us an entire new way to consume our violence. It is the Power Slap League. Check this out here. Um, here's a picture of how they set up. And so uh, you get a table, one guy kind of holds a noodle, um, and then the other guy, it's actually kind of funny if you watch it, there's a referee, you see him in the middle there, and uh, you have to declare to the referee on what number your slap is coming. Like, is it coming on one, two, or three? Like, and so the guy, you know, winds up and, you know, they count, the ref counts off one, two, and it could come on two, you just can't surprise the guy, right? And then, you know, the guy just has to stand there and he just takes it. I mean, you might look at it and you go, well, I mean, it's a slap. How bad could a slap be? Open hand, there's kind of no cocking or pulling back to the fist. I would tell you it's worse than you think. Um, this is one of the, the more nonviolent pictures of uh, the slap. Have you, have you ever seen this? Is it just me? <laughs> well, this is embarrassing, but anyway. Here's what I'll warn you, do not, when you see this, if you see this click up uh, on one of your social media feeds, and if you click on a reel, you will see more, uh, every time I go on any social media feed now, I just see guys getting knocked out, knocked out, knocked out, knocked out. Um, almost <laughs> the way you win, I guess, I've never actually watched the competition other than the reels is, you knock the guy, the other person, and by the way, this is for men and women alike, so you just knock the person out, and if they can't get back to the table, right, um, then you win. Power slapping, right? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, you know, that's not good. My pastor probably shouldn't be watching it, but, um, you know, maybe it just points to the, the devolving state of, of our culture. But, you know what? At least this kind of behavior is, at least we've contained it, right? Like, it's limited to, to the gym. It, it's not partaken in by the cultural elites. It's not celebrated or discussed in broader society. Nobody is talking, debating about this kind of behavior outside of a small handful of, of degenerates, really, who are, who are taking, they, hardly anyone even knows the PSL exists. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you the 94th Annual Academy Awards. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? <laughs> it's, that, was a, that was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh-oh. Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. It's got to be the most famous slap in the face in history, right? I was looking this up, trying to see if there was a more famous one. I can't find one. And Chris Rock, to his credit, man, he just ate it, right? Didn't go down. I mean, say, say what you want, but who knew Marty the Zebra from Madagascar could take a punch? <laughs> I don't know that in the history of me giving talks on what Jesus had to say that there stands a, 
a better kind of more contemporary instance of an age-old issue and a, and a very ancient teaching. This was debated a lot. What should Chris Rock have done? Like, what did he do? What, why did he do what he did? And, and here's actually the real question. What would you have done? Who taught you what to do? We're in this series called What If Jesus Was Serious? And we've, we've been using Scott Jathani's book as a springboard for a discussion on Jesus' most famous teaching. I, I think that many of these principles in this teaching were repeated often. I, I would say there were common points of his teaching. You see it recorded in other places um, in the scripture. We've been looking at the most famous revelation of these principles. It's, it's revealed in, by Matthew and what we call Matthew as a, a tax collector that Jesus invited to be a follower of his. And Matthew records all of these things in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It is Jesus' longest single recorded sermon. And if you've been walking with us over the last couple of weeks, I think what we're discovering together is that the sermon, if we were going to put it mildly, you might say that the sermon is challenging. If you were going to put it bluntly, I was thinking about this. If, I, if there was no, remember when Jesus got up and said these things, not only was there no reference point for them, the only reference point that existed, he was contradicting. But if I just got up here with no reference point and said these things in a sermon, I think most of you would go, this dude has lost it. He's crazy. I, we got to get out of here, right? Like, what he's talking about is nuts. We need to find another church. Because this is very radical in nature. It is countercultural and counterintuitive. And today, we hit the part, and no pun intended there, but we hit the part that has to be the most controversial, the most radical, the most misunderstood part of the whole teaching. And so with Chris Rock's sore cheek kind of fresh in our minds, right, I want to jump back into what Jesus was telling the folks that day on the mountain. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Of course they had heard it. Most of them had memorized it. It was part of the Mosaic law that they grew up that was part of their upbringing. Not only did they, they, they study it, they, they could cite it, they knew where it was in the book of Exodus, and... Um, and, and so, yeah, it was, it was something that was practiced everywhere. It was used in, in, the, uh, in the Israelites' justice system. It was in Exodus that the principle was that the punishment that God had laid out, it was a civil law, a judicial law for the country of Israel, that there should be a just penalty for evil actions. Justice should be equitable. Excessive harshness and excessive leniency should be avoided. Now, you should know there is no indication that there was actually an eye for an eye, that it was followed literally. There's no biblical account of anybody being maimed as a result of the law. And actually, in Israel, other than capital offenders, most other crimes were paid with payment and goods. If you injured a man's hand, they didn't cut off your hand, right? You, you had to compensate him for his lost wages. Now, in first century Israel... It seems that the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the, the law keepers, the professional good, and the law interpreters, those that handed it down, they had begun to take this principle and they moved it away from merely civil, and, uh, civil authorities and judges to everyday personal relationships. They taught that seeking personal revenge was acceptable. If somebody punched you, you punched him back. If somebody insulted you, he would be fair game for, for your insults. They ignored the, the fact that this was a, a judicial basis, right? And it became, well, it became in Israel a little bit of a personal mantra. And so, yes, they had heard of it, and they had all lived by it. 
not unlike, I would argue, us. And so Jesus goes on. But I tell you, and if you're tracking along in the sermon, every time Jesus says that, you should wince a little bit. Oh, boy. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. When I first became a believer and I started reading the Bible, it was always so interesting for me. I mean, I had no real religious background, no, no religious training at all. So uh, I remember the first time I came across, you know, I started reading the Bible in Genesis. First time I came across Noah, I was like, this is a Bible story? No idea, right? And, and you see that happen oftentimes, right? And here, if you're aware of our, our cultural expression, turn the other cheek, this is where that comes from. Eye for an eye. We think it's a cultural expression. Came from God to Moses. Turn the other cheek came from Jesus to us in this sermon. Now, now let me read again how almost borderline ridiculous what Jesus is asking us to do is. He's saying, I'm telling you, do not resist an evil person. If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And let me ask you a question that underlines our series. What if Jesus were serious about that teaching? What if that's just not like, you know, kind of metaphoric or something? Like seriously, what would that mean? Do not resist an evil person. If they slap you, turn the other cheek. Offer them the ability to slap you again. As some of you know, if you're a student of kind of world history, that singular verse has been uh, applied to justify pacifism in the face of evil for generations. Is that what Jesus is saying? I mean, if we're going to take Jesus seriously, shouldn't we care? Because this isn't what I was taught. And this isn't usually, I mean, I'd like to be better than I am, but it's not always what I practice. It was what Jesus is saying. Is what he's saying that no matter what people do, no matter what kind of evil is being perpetrated, just take it. Just, just roll over, let it happen. And if so, right, like if you want to contemporize it, if so, do, do the calls to defund the police actually make sense? And while we're at it, shouldn't we just disband the military too, right? I mean, if Jesus is the king and there's a new kingdom and we're to take him seriously about his kingdom, what are we supposed to do with that teaching? How do you, literally, how do you play it out? All of us take hits. Some are physical, some are verbal, but all of us take hits. What do you do? Now, let me answer the question somewhat quickly. I'll, I'll kind of I'll, I'll wrap up the first part with this. Jesus is quite serious in what he's saying. It's just that our interpretation of what he's teaching is wrong. How, how do I know that? Well, first, there are a few, perhaps only one thing in Scripture that is more important to God than the concept of justice. In the book of De Deuteronomy, God is referenced as a rock, and here's the quote, this rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without inequity, just and upright is he. God is a God of justice. It is foundational to who he is. And because justice is foundational to who he is, it is foundational to his desires for his people. There are, I could be up here all day reading you, reading you verses about justice in the Bible. But because I want you to sense how you have to make sure you interpret this, this teaching of Jesus correctly. I will show you a couple of them. Psalm 82. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. It does not say sit idly by, right, the weak and the fatherless, and don't care about the cause of the poor and the oppressed. 
in the face of injustice, in the face of unrighteousness, followers of God throughout all of time have been called to action, not to pacifism. Learn to do right, seek justice. Listen to all of the, the action-oriented words. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, please the case of the widow. That was Isaiah. How about Solomon in Proverbs? Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. How about Jeremiah? This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. How about this one from Job, right? Job, some of you know, in the Old Testament book of Job, most scholars believe it was the first book in the Bible that was ever written. Job is, is talking to God about what kind of person he is, and he's kind of defending his own righteousness. Here's how he defended it. He said, I rescued the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to assist them. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. That doesn't sound very passive, does it? This isn't just an Old Testament concept. Think about who Job is saying uh, that he is willing to spring into action for. The poor, the fatherless, right? He says, uh, the blind, the lame, uh, the needy, and the stranger. These are all people, think about that, that are kind of under, on the underside uh, of, of civilization. They are the people that God's laws say they should be respected because they are human beings made in the image of God. But in the cultures in which they exist, they are trodden over. Jesus, in a very similar teaching of the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Luke, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. After, after going through some of the Beatitudes, the things that you're aware of, blessed are you who hunger, right? Blessed are the poor. Then Jesus goes into a series of pronouncement of woes. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you're going to go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you're going to mourn and weep. In the face of injustice, followers of God are to do anything but keep quiet. We are to actively oppose injustice in our world. But, and again, here is, here is where, as followers of Jesus, we have dropped the ball. We are to do it in a completely countercultural way. We are to combat injustice differently than the world. And the way in which we do it should be so radically different. It should be so strange that it would make us stand out. Kind of like a light on a stand. He had introduced that concept already, right? Kind of like the way in which, which salt preserved the culture. The way we should respond might preserve dignity and humanity. How do we respond? We respond to injustice and inequity and unfairness the same way that our Father in heaven does. You'll actually see Jesus appeals to our sonship and our daughtership later on in, in, in this piece. Here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees about this exact concept. He said, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. There's the woe again, okay? Here's the injustice piece. Woe. And it's to the religious people who do what? They're really good at keeping the ceremonial law. They tithe like it's like, I got to give the Lord 10%. And they tithe all the way down to herbs. 
They sacrifice a portion of even the smallest things. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Justice. God is a God of justice. The psalmist wrote, righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Immediately followed by, mercy and truth stand in front of you. Justice and mercy. Righteousness and love. God our Father is the perfect balance of these two things. In Christ, you eventually see them merge on the cross, where Jesus, because of the just nature of God, bears the punishment to our sin, and the Father sends the Son. Jesus willingly goes to the cross because of the love of our, of our Father. Later on in the scriptures, it would say that mercy triumphs judgment. Pretty famous verse here. Uh, 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 many of you heard it from Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with God. Again, I could do it all day. You want to see these two pillars of who God is. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Get them. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Wait, what? Psalm 33. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. How? So if Jesus is serious about this whole turn the other cheek thing, right? How do you reconcile calls for justice that demand action and love with this concept. How do you turn the other cheek and not allow injustice to just reign? Well, a couple things, and, and these things would have not been lost on a first century audience. First, super important, Jesus is not talking about self-defense here. This teaching is, is not just, just sit there and take it. That's not what he's teaching. This is a teaching about retaliation. It is not a teaching about protection, number one. N number two, and it's key to understanding this, notice that Jesus does not say, just turn the other cheek. Jesus in the teaching actually references a specific cheek. Did you catch that? It's very specific. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, very specific, because if they slap you on the right cheek, then you would have to turn to them the left cheek, right? Jesus did not say, and, and it's for a reason, I'm going to show you that in a minute. If, if someone punches you in the face, it was a slap and not a punch, and it was on the right cheek and not in the nose. Slap, not a punch, okay? So it wasn't meant to, like, knock somebody out, right? It was a slap. And it was on a specific side of your cheek, not in the nose. What is going on here? So in order to demonstrate this, I'm going to need to, uh, to bring a volunteer up. And so um, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I took the liberty of, of creating for ourselves our own little uh, United Slap League thing here. Betsy, noodle, please. And uh, so, you know, as we get ready for me to show, show you this, I, I just, I'm going to need a volunteer. And, and so as I look out on the crowd, I, I just wonder who it is that I, I'd like to slap. Um, I mean, uh, I'd like to, uh, to volunteer. Come on up. I've got somebody that's willing to do it. Plus, I'm considerably bigger than him, so I feel good about this. Hop over there, big boy. All right, now, you understand how this goes, right? You got to hold on to the noodle. You drop the noodle, the game's over, right? All right, noodle behind your head or behind your back. 
All right, so a couple issues, okay? I'm not going to hurt your child, just so. <laughs> I can sense the fear in mama's eyes. <laughs> Come on up. If you're going to slap somebody on the right cheek, right? If I go to slap him on the right cheek, what cheek am I actually hitting him on? His left cheek, right? I cannot slap him on the right on the right cheek with my right hand, okay? And so, what could I do, right? If I wanted to hit him on, on, on the right cheek, I would have to do what? I would have to punch him or slap him with my left hand. Now, in that culture, very primitive culture, right? The left hand was used for, let's just say, unseemly activities that you would have to do during the day, right? And so... You don't use your left hand for almost anything. There were actually different cities. Um, I believe it was in Qumran. If you raised, you even waved with your left hand, I think you had to do 10 days of penance, right? So to hit somebody with your left hand, you really wouldn't do, right? Because, because it's not permissible. So if I'm going to hit him, if I'm going to slap him on the right cheek, what do I have to do? I have to backhand him, right? Now, come here. <laughs> I would have to backhand him as I hit him. And so what Jesus is saying to that culture, and they understood this, right? You and I, it goes right over our heads. But what Jesus is describing here is not a physical attack. What Jesus is describing here is what? It's an insult. It's degrading. It's how one treats somebody, a subject below them. It's, it's what masters would do to slaves, it's what the Romans were doing to the Israelites in that audience, right? All right, you're done. Thank you. Would you thank our, uh, our wonderful volunteer? And I just want to go on record saying that nobody was injured in this, right? What you're dealing with here is not a fist fight. This is not a teaching on just standing there and letting somebody beat you down, right? A backhanded slap was the way you admonished inferiors in that day, right? Theologian Walter Wink, who made a career almost on this teaching of Jesus, here's what he said. I really think it helps you interpret, helps you and I interpret the whole rest of the teaching. We have here a set of unequal relations in, in, in each of which retaliation would be suicidal. The only normal response would be cowering submission. Part of the confusion, he writes, surrounding these sayings arises from the failure to ask who Jesus' audience was. In all of the following examples, Jesus' listeners are not those who strike or initiate lawsuits or impose forced labor, but they are the victims. They are, among, they are the hearers, right? They're there are among his hearers people who were subjected to these very indignities. They were forced to, to stifle outrage at their dehumanizing treatment. Race, gender, age, status, all as a result of the Roman occupation. Why does he counsel these that are already humiliated people to turn the other cheek? Because, this is important to hear, church, because the action robs the oppressor of the power to humiliate. The person who turns the other cheek is saying, in effect, try again. I remember, this is just a side note, Courtney was my toughest kid when, when I would discipline Courtney. I mean, I would take her up to her room, and I, I would spank her. I thought about calling Dyfus on myself sometimes. <laughs> and and she, I'd put her down, and she would look at me, and she'd go, that didn't hurt. <laughs> Literally. 
that's a talk for another day. That wasn't even in the thing. But anyway, <laughs> why is Jesus counseling these already humiliated people to turn the other cheek? Because the action robs the oppressor of the power to humiliate. The person who turns the other cheek is saying, in effect, Try again, because your first blow failed to, to achieve its intended effect. I deny you the power to humiliate me. I am a human being just like you. Your status does not alter that fact. You cannot demean me. Such a response, it would create enormous difficulties for the striker, right? I mean, logistically, how would he hit the other cheek that was now turned to him? He can't backhand it with his right hand. If he hits with a fist, he makes the other his equal. He's, he's a sense acknowledging him now as a peer. Even if the superior were to give the orders to have that person flogged, right? He's been given notice that, that this underling is in fact now a human being. In a world, in that world full of honor and shaming, which by the way, it seems incrementally to be our world. He's been rendered impotent to instill shame in a subordinate. He's been stripped of his power to dehumanize the other. And I just, this is one of my favorite quotes of all time. If you want to take anything away from this talk, here it is. Gandhi, who was influenced deeply by the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus taught, quote, the first principle of nonviolent action is that of non-cooperation with everything humiliating. Can I repeat that? That's so good. Could you please just put this over the top of every social media feed you have and every time you watch any political candidate? The first principle of nonviolent action is that of non-cooperation with everything humiliating. Don't, don't you see what Jesus is getting at here? What he's saying is that my, my followers' reactions to insults and even injury is going to be so remarkably different than anybody else's, than what is normal, and it will far exceed what could possibly be expected. I mean, what's normal to do when you're insulted or humiliated? As far as I can kind of see, there's two things you could do. One is just to take it, to eat the punch, to just keep the cheek there, to, to cower, to, to fear and... And, and, and maybe to, to worry about what's going to happen. Like, why do we take hits like that? Maybe we're afraid we'll get hit again. Maybe you're in some kind of a dysfunctional relationship. Maybe it's not physical, right? But maybe it's just like the repeated insults. The repeat. Maybe, maybe you're afraid to rock the boat. Maybe you're afraid, right, to stand up for yourself, to confront. Things could go the wrong way. He might leave. She might find somebody else. So I, I know it's, I know I shouldn't, but. See, when you do that, this, this balance that God has put forth is what followers of his look like between justice and love, right? Mercy and righteousness. It falls apart, right? It's not loving to let others just continue on in sin, in their abuse of you or anybody. Love I showed it to you over and over again. Love confronts. Love speaks up in the face of injustice. It does not sit still for another smack. But then there's the second response, the more common response, the more culturally expected response, the one that I learned at my father's knee, the one that I am sure I handed down to my kids, and that was this. I know you know it. Watch. If somebody hits you, what do you do? You hit them back. Now... Can we just talk? You know you weren't taught just to hit them back. You were told them to hit them back harder. You, you don't even buy eye for an eye, do you? <laughs> right? 
we're the people he's talking to. It's shock and awe, baby. You insult me, I degrade you. You embarrass me, I cancel you. You hurt me, I'll go after your kids. What Jesus is teaching is very, very different. It is this, this balance of justice and love, of righteousness and mercy. In turning the other cheek, what you're essentially doing, right, you're showing the person that hurt you, that insulted you, the one who, in a sense, in the relationship, has acted as if you are the inferior, right? That is claiming some kind of superiority over you in the relationship. You're showing them two things. The first, in turning the other cheek, is you are forcing them to see that you will not be cowed or intimidated or subjected. You let them know that you will not stand for it. But instead of striking back or going nuclear on them, in turning the other cheek, what you're essentially doing is you are saying, I'm forgiving that blow, and I'm giving another opportunity for restoration and forgiveness and relationship. I'm not going to let that be the end. Tim Keller, who we unfortunately lost this week, maybe nobody has impacted me more than Tim Keller. He, he put it this way. He said that what turning the other cheek means when it comes to injustice on us or in, on others is that to the outside, we reflect that we are actively opposed to the slight and to the injustice. We stand up against it. We say something. We oppose it. But on the inside, for the followers of Jesus, there is peace and grace and forgiveness and love for even our oppressors. Turning the other cheek puts the relationship on this new footing of justice and kindness. What the Lord requires of us, right? Remember? It's, it's saying that I care about injustice, but I also care about you. Do you see how this is missing in our cultural divide today? This is nowhere to be found. You don't, this is nowhere to be found anymore. Now we just destroy each other. Everybody's everybody's enemy. In a sense, you give your enemy a chance to start over again. Love your enemies, it cannot mean let your enemy do whatever they want. It can't mean never oppose mistreatment, but it means you oppose it in such a way that you show care and concern, equal care and concern for the victim and the perpetrator. It's unheard of. Your heart and hope is, is the best for both of them. To do justice without kindness in the end means you just return injustice for injustice. You participate in that broken system and it destroys the world. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to become like them. I want you to become like me. And of course, to, to love kindness without doing justice in the end is not really to love at all, right? Evil would just rule. Let your passion be for justice, Jesus would say, and not for your reputation. Let your, let your feelings rise for righteousness, but fall in personal humility. Keller gave this great example of a phone call he heard one time. He said he was in the next room and an adult woman was talking to her father on the phone. And the woman fell silent for a few minutes. And then the next time he heard her speak, she said, Dad, I... I've asked you before, and I'm going to ask you again, I can't let you continue to talk to me like this, and I can't let you continue to talk to mom like that anymore. And so because you keep doing it, I'm going to go. 
but dad, I love you and I care about you and I want our relationship to go forward and if you would be willing to change, I want you to know I am so willing to come home. She said, I'm gonna go for now, but I'll call you, I'll call you later. Two ways she could have done it, right? She could have just taken the passive response, just let him continue to say the things that he always said about her, let him continue to beat up her mother all the time, and just take it, because you know it's my dad, and I want to maintain the relationship, and so if I say anything, then I might ruin the relationship, so I'm just going to let it all, I'm just going to let the injustice roll forth. Or she could have retaliated, right? She could have said, you know what, Dad, it's not Mom that's this, it's you that's this. I'm so tired of you, you've ruined my life. Let me tell you one more thing, you're a scoundrel, and I'll tell him I'm going to leave you, and hung up. But she didn't do either. She sought justice, and she, she, she loved kindness. She turned the other cheek. She said, here's what justice and truth are, and if you're willing to change, I want the relationship. It means I'm going to turn, this is Keller's line, not mine, and it was so brilliant, I can't get it out of my mind. It means I'm going to turn the other cheek, not so you can hit it again, but to give you a chance to kiss it. As Walter Wink described, you see this play out over and over as Jesus speaks, this, this concept of, of the people that have been maligned and marginalized in the world, the poor, the broken, right, the, the maligned, the oppressed, how they deal with these so-called, so thought of superiors in, in, in terms of culture and, and kindness and righteousness and love. Jesus goes on, if anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anybody forces you to go one mile with them, then go two. Again, Jesus' original audience understood the reference. It, it's lost on us. But there was something that was mandatory in the culture called compulsory public service. In that culture, temple leaders could come up alongside of you and, and, and make you work for them for a certain amount of time. Political leaders, Roman officers, soldiers, people of power could just come up to any average citizen and conscript them into service. Forced him to go. In that culture, it was literally, they had a, a mandate. They had to, if they, if they were told by a superior to walk with them, to carry their stuff, they had to do it for what, what's believed to be a thousand paces. And Jesus said, if you're recruited, if you're treated this way by a superior, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk 2,000. What does it do? In a very real sense, you gain your dignity back. It's no longer compulsory, it sets you on the same and equal footing. And not only that, you stand out. You go the extra mile. Oh, by the way, there's another one of those cultural sayings, right? That's where it came from. You go the extra mile. You become the light that is now no longer under a bushel but put up on a stand. The salt that preserves the culture and the society. Jesus goes on. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then here comes the why. Why? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now listen, listen, listen to this. This is true of your dad, okay? This is your dad. Sons and daughters of God. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, right, this is true of your father. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and on, on the unrighteousness. This is what your dad does, right? He is just and loving to everyone, to the righteous and the unrighteous. So you should do that too. That's all Jesus is saying. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, 
I like this. I could kind of picture him stopping. Remember Matthew. Matthew's sitting in the crowd, right? Matthew's actually recording this. He's probably sitting over there with his pen writing this stuff down, right? And Ma- Matthew, remember, he's a tax collector. That was the worst kind of sinner you could be. I mean, you were, you were the degenerate of degenerates in town. Nobody would talk to you. People took wide berths around you. You were, you were a traitor to your nation and to your religion. You were just, just the worst. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? He's pointing over at Matthew. Imagine Matthew, wait, what? If you love those who love you, what reward are you going to get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, huge quote. This really helps frame the entire, the entire discussion that we just went through. What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? What are you doing more than others? In the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, God was always trying to make his people look unique, to have them stand out. Why? So that people would look and go, their God must be the one true God. I can define who they are, and I can see what he's doing with them and through them. In the Old Testament, how did they stand out? They stood out through, through these Old Testament ceremonial and cultural and clothing laws, diet laws, all designed to have them stand out, right? But in, in, in this, under this new covenant, those new laws, those old laws are no longer binding. Uh, uh, by, by, binding. So how, does God, how do God's people stand out? Like this. Right? Love mercy, do... Love justice, do mercy. This is the clothing you put on. You stand out because of justice and kindness. Be different. Do more than is expected. And so Jesus concludes, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, here's, not, here's how I know he doesn't mean be perfect like you'll be sinless, because he's already described that you can't be sinless, just in the paragraph before, right? You've heard it said, do not murder. I tell you if you hate your brother. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I tell you if you look at a woman. So what does he mean? What he means is when it comes to relationships, when it comes to justice and mercy and righteousness and love, when it comes to a choice between passivity or retaliation, don't choose either. Be perfect in your relationships just like your dad. Peter summed it up this way. Imagine Peter walking and hearing this sermon over and over and over again. Here's how Peter would put it later. He said, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. We don't retaliate. Church, can I just repeat that one more time? Because I, I, I mean, if you just want... We don't retaliate, right? We don't retaliate. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. It's interesting, I looked into Chris Rock's responses. Um, He didn't say much for a while, right? And... uh, he put out a video of a response about a year later. Um, his first response was, you know, people ask him why, why he doesn't. Uh, it, his ending was a joke. I'm not going to get into that. But, but his serious responses were two. The first was he's like, the reason I didn't respond is, did you see Will Smith? He's like five times my size. <laughs> right? He's like the guy played Muhammad Ali. What am I going to do? And so... So his first, he first evidenced kind of a passive response. What am I going to do? I'm just going to have to take it. But he only evidenced that for about two seconds because then he went into just a, a profanity-laced eviscerating of Will Smith and his wife. Just, he didn't hit him back. He hit him back harder. 
With those kind of responses that go, go on in our cultural divide, where everybody is imputing ill will to everybody, everybody is your enemy, everybody is demonic, everybody's an enemy that must be destroyed, I couldn't help but take some time this, this week thinking about Martin Luther King Jr. and, and how, he, how he would reference this teaching and how it impacted his life so deeply, his call to nonviolence and the impact it made in our world. I want you to listen to this. I read it this week. According to MLK biographer Taylor Branch, about his, this was um, Mr. Branch's battle to prevent Dr. King's profoundly considered theory of nonviolence from being relegated to history and not recognized for its relevance to the issues America and the world faces today. King's practice, he said, was complex and radical and often been misunderstood. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? Sounds familiar. Some of his closest supporters had their doubts about his own commitment to nonviolence, whether it was personal or just an abstraction for him. During a meeting of King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, a man rose up from the audience, leapt onto the stage, and smashed King right in the face. It's a true story. Punched him. Punched him hard. And then he punched him again. After the first punch, Branch recounts that King just dropped his hands and he stood there and he allowed the assailant, who turned out to be a member of the American Nazi party, to punch him again. And when King's associates tried to step in, King stopped them. Don't touch him, he shouted. Don't touch him. We want to pray for him. And when the assailant started slugging King, most people thought, Branch says, that it, it was a surprise part of the program. He walked up and slugged him and people still thought that this might be some sort of nonviolent demonstration or something. And then he hit him again. He hit him hard. In fact, he couldn't continue the rest of the convention. Knocked him around, and people finally realized this wasn't a demonstration. This was an emergency. And, and they went and dragged him out and, and swarmed around the Nazi. And King is already saying, don't touch him. Don't hurt him. It was an important revelation, even for those who had been close to him for years. Even for Rosa Parks, the heroine of King's first struggle, the Montgomery bus boycott, Quote, Rosa Parks was quite literally taken by this because she always thought that nonviolence was an abstraction to King. She told him that she'd never really seen it in him until that moment. And another, a number of other people did too. People still don't quite believe in nonviolence in the radical way King did, though Branch thinks it's the most important aspect of his legacy. You know, I didn't know this till this week. I was... I, I was just thinking about how this concept, Jesus changed the world with this. Martin Luther King changed the world to this. The Soviet Union fell without a shot ever being fired. This principle wins. MLK lived by, from what I understand, six principles of what he calls six principles of nonviolence. Six principles for our purposes of not an eye for an eye or harder. Six principles of turn the other cheek. I just want to read them to you. I don't have time to comment. I'll just read them to you. But boy... This, can I just tell you, Maggie and I were joking about it before the service, this is brilliant at another level. This is taking what Jesus taught and living it. Principle one, nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. It is active, right? Active, we don't just sit there and take it, we speak up. Nonviolent resistance to evil. It is aggressive spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. He got it. Principle two, nonviolence speaks to win nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. The result of nonviolence is redemption and reconciliation. The purpose of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. Principle three, nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Can I get an amen? Right? 
Nonviolence recognizes that evildoers are also victims that are not evil people. The nonviolent resistor seeks to defeat evil, not people. This is a man that was getting bricks bounced off his head. Principle four, nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform. Nonviolence accepts suffering without retaliation. Unearned suffering, listen to this, Christian people. Unearned suffering is redemptive and has a tremendous educational and transforming possibilities. Principle five, nonviolence chooses love instead of hate. It resists violence of the spirit as well of the body, right? It's not like, oh, I'm not going to do it, but man, I'm burning up inside. I'm wishing karma on you so bad. Nonviolence resists violence of the spirit. Nonviolent love is spontaneous, unmotivated, unselfish, and creative. And principle six, nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice. The nonviolent resistor has deep faith that justice will eventually win. Nonviolence believes that God is a God of justice. Somebody should write that down. Jesus changed our world with these principles. Martin Luther King did too. And so this morning, the question lingers for you. What if Jesus were serious? Like, what if he were serious? I think if he were, and you, and you determined, if you began to become inspired by, fueled by the way Jesus loves you, if, if you would begin to see what Jesus has done for you, what Jesus has offered to you, his other cheek, even after all of the ways we, we, we have struck, in a sense, Jesus, and offended him, and, and used them for our own purposes, right? Older sons in the prodigal son story, younger sons in the prodigal story. If inspired by the love of God and, and Jesus' gospel, I mean, if you would just begin to ask yourself every day, if you would just pick one situation, any situation where you feel hurt or offended or where you feel mistreated, instead of just responding with passivity or retaliation, if instead you would do more, listen church, do more than what could be expected. Don't look like everybody else. I think, I actually know, I know you could still change your marriage. I know you could still change the relationship you have with your children. I know you could change the ethos in your home. I know you could change the way things go at your job. I know how you could impact this church. And I can only imagine what would happen in this town if we just took Jesus seriously. Let's stand and close in song.